0: We have now come to the last of the omnis, as they're called, the omnis. uh, We have been looking at the um, uh, omnipresence of God, that He's everywhere present. And we have looked at the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. And for this Sunday, we will have a look at the last omni, that is the omnipotence of God, the omnipotence of God, which is just a fancy word for God being all-powerful, that God has all power. Now, we we have some power, of course. We we have the power to accomplish physical tasks. We might lift objects. We have the power to influence other people with our speech, with our life. We have the power to uh, solve problems, mental power. But God is... It's not like that. He's, he's unique in his aspect of being all-powerful. He, of course, has the, 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 the physical power. He can, he can lift anything. There's nothing too heavy for him. And there's no, no person that is too, too hard for him to reach. There is no heart so, so hard that is so hard that he cannot penetrate it. And he has, of course, the power to solve any problem, any kind of sophisticated engineering problem or whatever. He has all power. There is nothing in creation that is too hard for him to do, to accomplish. And God is, again, unique in this aspect. There is no, nothing in creation that can even come close to this kind of power, who can, who can lift any object, who can solve any problem. God is unique in this aspect, so this, this attribute, the omnipotence of God, it's, it's one of the attributes that people often seem to, to associate with God. If you ask them, now, now who is God? Can you describe him to me? And if you ask that of really anyone, believer or unbeliever, they will say, well, God is almighty. God has all power. That is who God is. That is the one attribute that everybody seems to know about God. They might not know that he's just and he is, he is uh, full of wrath. He, he he hates sin. But they seem to know that he has all power, and it's it's also one of the attributes that we that, that is mentioned in the uh, in the theodicy problem. If God is is uh, all knowing and he is all good and he has all power, then why is there evil? Why is there sickness and death and sin? I will not talk about the theodicy problem today but omnipotence seems to be that one attribute that people seem to always recognize when you talk about God. If you come if you go out there and you, you ask someone anyone who is God, he is almighty. He is almighty. He has all power. But as often as we, When we talk about God, people seem to have a wrong idea or an unbiblical idea of what they mean by God being all-powerful. What do we mean when we say that God is all-powerful? What does the Bible say when we talk about God being omnipotent? So we need to shape our understanding of who God is when, when we say that he is all-powerful. We need to look to the Bible, to the Scriptures, to understand what the Bible says. So let's begin there by uh, seeing what it does not mean. What what does it not mean when when we say that God is all-powerful, that God is omnipotent? Well, it does not mean that God can do absolutely anything that you can possibly think of. That is not the meaning of the omnipotence of God, that God can do Everything that you can think of. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot repent. Numbers 23. Verse 19 says. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should repent. God cannot repent like men can do. God cannot lie like a sinner can do. That is not what is meant by the omnipotence of god god cannot sin and god cannot change his mind first samuel chapter 15 verse 29 says like this also the glory of israel will not lie or change his mind the glorious israel being a reference to god he will not lie he will not change his mind we talked about that some time ago, when we had a look on the immutability of God, that God never changes. God is always the same. And this, of course, means that when we, when we say that God is all-powerful, He it means that He cannot change. He does not change. He does not have the power to change himself or to lie. And second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter two. Verse 13 says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. This is something that God cannot do. Deny himself. Deny his truthfulness. Deny his promises. Deny his character. Deny his sinlessness. God cannot deny himself. He is always faithful. He is always The same, he always honors his promises. God cannot deny himself. And James 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. We can most assuredly be tempted. We are tempted all the time. Every single day. But God cannot be tempted. God's omnipotence does not mean that he can be tempted. Or sin or lie or change. And then in verse 17. James 1 again. Verse 17 says. Every good thing given. And every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There is no variation in God. He's not a God who will save today and a God who will forget about us tomorrow. There is no variation to him. If he has given a promise to save those who believe in Jesus Christ, he will honor that promise. He will, there's no variation to it. There is no change in him. No shifting shadow. He is always light. He's always light. So, again, when we say, that God is all-powerful, that God has all power to do whatever He pleases, it does not mean that God can do absolutely anything. God will not do anything that contradicts His own nature, His other attributes. God is sinless, so He cannot sin. God is truth, so He cannot lie. God is immutable, so He cannot Change. This is important to remember because this is one of those uh, things that unbelievers seems to raise when they when, when they talk about the omnipotence of God. Okay, so can God create a stone that is too heavy for him to lift? Well, no, of course not. He cannot create a stone that is too levy, heavy for him to lift. God cannot contradict himself. God cannot do something which would contradict his nature his characters so that is what the omnipotence of god does not mean but there are things of course we can talk about what it does mean but before we get to that i want to also want to mention that God's omnipotence sometimes extends beyond what he actually does. What we actually see him doing in time, in space, in creation. Like God can technically do things which we never see happening. If you like to turn in your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. You can see an example of this in Matthew chapter 3 verse 9 where uh, John the Baptist is speaking and he says we start in verse 8 therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves we have Abraham for our father for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham God would be able to raise up children from literal stones. Now, God didn't actually do that. He didn't take stones in the desert and made them into children of Abraham. But God can do that. That is in within, within the power, within his almighty power, to actually take dead stones, stones that had never had life, that have never resembled anything of that kind, and make that into a living person. That is within his ability. And then in Matthew 26, if you want to turn there as well, right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 26, verse 53, where Jesus is now being arrested and brought before the Jewish council, the Jewish high priests. (coughs) He says here in, in verse 53, Or do you think... That I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Of course, Jesus could have appealed to his father and he would have sent him 12 legions of angels. Do you know how many angels that is? There's a lot of angels. And you know how much damage one angel can do? It killed a whole army. So sending 12 legions of angels is practically ending all of human life. Jesus could have appealed to the Father and he would have sent so many angels that there would be no humans left. Literally. But he didn't. He didn't do that. He didn't appeal to his Father. He took on the cross which was his to bear instead of appealing to who, to God's omnipotence to God's almighty power to come and save him to rescue him from the evil men which he could have done he bore the guilt the pain he died he literally died he suffered instead of uh, calling down angels. So God can do that, which we don't necessarily see happen in time and in space. God can do much more than we could possibly think of. We have that verse in Ephesians 3.20 that says that God is able to do far more abundantly Beyond all that we can ask or think far more abundantly, not just far more, but far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Not just what we can ask, but what we can ask or think. There are many things that we think, but we never ask. There are many things that is in our mind that seems impossible. But even that which are still only in our minds, only in our thoughts, God is Able to do and far more abundantly than these things. We can't even comprehend how much God is able to do. How far his omnipotence extends. But God's almighty power is always, always in accordance with his will. What he has decreed. What he has said that he will do. So, now we come to what the omnipotence of God actually looks like. What what does the Bible say about the omnipotence of God? Let's let's see that from a few aspects, various aspects here. First, in his name. God has many names and many, many titles in the Bible. One of those is El Shaddai. El Shaddai which means God Almighty. That is his title, his name, something that we should recognize of him. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, if you want a biblical term, of course, for for God's omnipotence, omnipotence is just a fancy word that theologians come up with. They do that all the time. You use almightiness of God, the almightiness of God. El Shaddai. Now, God is also called Adonai, which means Lord. He's Lord. He's called the Lord of hosts. He's called the mighty one of Israel. There we have the word mighty again. He's called the king of kings. And the lord of lords. You gather all kings and lords together. And they still have to answer up to one person. God. to One. Divine. Essence. He's. Also called the only sovereign. The only sovereign. Now again we have some power. But we are not sovereign in that sense that we can do something that God cannot do. Or we can do that which God cannot resist. God is the only sovereign. The only sovereign. Sola. Now let's go to Revelation 1 verse 8 and This book, the book of Revelation, seems to have many misunderstandings, especially among people who don't read it. Revelation 1, verse 8. This is a book that John wrote, John the Apostle, so we believe. He wrote it, um, as he says in the beginning, as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And so forth. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is something we see of Jesus Christ. And what is the, the words he used there? In verse um, 8. Verse 8 of chapter 1. He says like this. I am the Alpha and, and the Omega. Says the Lord God. Who is and was and who is to come. The Almighty. This is the last Word in the little introduction, the book of Revelation. What is the, 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 the introduction of, who, of Jesus Christ? What's the last word that John wants to put on his readers' minds before we launch into the book of Revelation, with all its judgments, with all its divine power being poured out on men? That God, that Jesus is the Almighty on the, the, the last days. We're in the last days, by the way. But in the last days, when people will flee from God, when they will, when they will try to hide in caves and, and in mountains and try to get away from God, what will be that name that rings in their ears? Oh, the Almighty. The Almighty is doing it again. The Almighty is destroying. The Almighty is coming down with power. The Almighty. They will peer around the corner and will see, is the Almighty there? Is the Almighty there? And there will be rumors and they will be scared and they will be fearful because the Almighty has come back. The Almighty has come back to judge the earth. The Almighty. That is the title of Jesus. That is the title of Jesus as God. That's the first thing that we see His omnipotence in his name and in his titles. The second thing is that, that we need to consider is nothing is, of course, too hard for God. This is not something that people usually contend with, but we, can, we need to consider it. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for him. We already saw that in Matthew, in chapter 3, that God could raise up children to Abraham from literal stones. There's nothing too hard for him to do with that can just take a deadless object and make it into life. He did that with Adam. He did that with Eve. Now, of course, the Bible is full of references to God. Being able to do anything, Luke 1, 37 states, for nothing will be impossible to God. Nothing will be impossible to God. He could make Mary pregnant even though she had never been with a man. A once in a universe event, if you could call it that, once in a lifetime is too short, once in a universe event, a virgin birth, nothing is or nothing will be impossible with God. Mm-hmm. And then if you like to turn with me to Job, chapter... 42, you know, the book of Job, Job, who was a righteous man, who was a, uh, a man who lived blamelessly, uprightly, fearing God, but lost everything, lost his children, lost his health, lost his prosperity, his possessions. Now, here at the end, last chapter of Job, verse 2, it says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose can be thwarted. All of God's purposes will be accomplished. Everything that He has set out to do, everything He has planned, everything He has willed will happen every single one of his purposes will be established and for Job this we see this is in the end of this book when, when Job had lost everything. His friends had come to him trying to comfort him. Doing actually more damage than being comfort to him. They, they thought that there was something. Some some sin in Job's life that he needed to repent of. And that, that was why God was bringing judgment on him. He needs to repent of that one sin that he has. Or many sins that he has not repented of. Job know that there is no such sin. There is no such hidden sin, an unrepented sin in my life. Job did not understand why God had given him over to Satan, given him or or allowed him to strike him, allowed him to take away family, possessions, health, everything. Job did not understand why. And he did not probably for his whole life understand why. He was restored. He was given health and prosperity and, and family back. But Joe probably never understood. We have this book, this revelation from God to understand why God works in the ways that he does. And he was, of course, to show his own gl- glory, to display before Satan, be- display before all of the heavenly hosts what his servant would do what Job would do in the time of distress, that he would not turn away from God, that he would not dishonor or disobey God, he would not curse God, even though his wife tried to have him do that. But Job knew, even though he did not understand, so he knew that you God, you can do all things. I don't understand why you do them. I don't understand all of your purposes. But you can do all things. And they are always right. They are always right. And they are always according to God's purposes. Nothing happens randomly. There is no no, uh, atom or element out there in the universe who is completely random, who is... Don't, who is not under God's control, who is not under God's power and purpose. No, no uh, supernova, no black hole, nothing such of those things are random. They all happen for a reason. They all are according to His purposes. Because God is all powerful to control them, to make them do that which are according to His purposes. The devil is God's devil, as Martin Luther said. The devil had to do that which God told him to. The devil wanted to strike Job. He was allowed to. The devil wanted to take away everything, even his health, and he was allowed to. But he had to spare Job's life. The devil could not take Job's life. The devil stands under God's almighty power and control. Nothing or no one can resist. Nothing is impossible to God. Not the will of man. Not the will of Satan. No lifeless object. No supernova. No black hole. Nothing can stand against God's purposes and his power. Nothing is impossible to him, And the, the third thing you need to see is that God does whatever he pleases. There's, of course, there's, the go-to verse here is Psalm 115, verse 3. If you want to turn there, Psalm 115, verse 3, which just simply states, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It means what it says, and it says what it means. God can do whatever he pleases. If he pleases to do something, he will do it. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God has the power to do exactly what he wills to do. No person, no entity, no thing can resist him. If he wants to save you, you will be saved regardless of what you say, regardless of what you do. Of course, it will always happen according to his plan. It's by faith in Christ. But if he has purposed you unto salvation, you will be saved. There is nothing stopping that. Your unbelief cannot stop that. It's... it's it, it, it goes beyond my comprehension that someone think that, that their unbelief could resist God so much that his purposes would not be established. That his, his power is not so, so, uh, so great that he could, could not save a person if that person does not believe. Some believe that man has something called autonomous free will, autonomous free will that their free will is so autonomous is so beyond god and his power that is completely free completely free to do any decision to do anything but it's completely unbiblical no one can resist god when he works god does whatever he pleases the end He is omnipotent to save and he is omnipotent to judge. But he does whatever he pleases. And fourth, God's works reveal his omnipotence. God's works in creation and God's works in redemption reveal his omnipotence. We could also talk about his works in, uh, what's it called, Uh, providential works and his miraculous works, but we'll focus on on his creative and redemptive works. So his creative works, I think you know the text for his creative works. It's it's not really hard to find. It's Genesis 1. Genesis 1. We, We have all read it many, many times. God working in the beginning of time. But if you don't know it, then it's time for you to learn it now. It says this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke. And there was. God's power is not displayed in in uh, him doing complicated, sophisticated, calculate, calculating formulas and, and planning and scheming. And, and coming up with blueprints and involving a team of, of skilled engineers. No, God speaks. And there is. He just uttered words. He just breathes out and Creation comes into being we often talk about how we create different things artists create paintings offers creates books we have this thing called content creators nowadays and people online do widows and blogs and whatever they do they're called content creators you're supposed to to get paid for it by or something like that. But anyway, content creates very, very popular nowadays. Something that many young people want to do. I don't know why, but they seem to do it. They seem to like it. Um, so we say that they create. They are content creators. They create stuff. They create texts. They create videos. They create music, whatever. Builders create houses. Engineers like me creates, or sometimes don't really accomplish that, but tries to create uh, sophisticated software or, or uh, technical devices. We try. I promise you, we try. And children in Sunday school, they create paintings, they do crafts. But all this involves using things that already exist. None of us comes up with new creation. No uh, author comes up with a Text that didn't involve using paper and pen, or in the digital era, we use computers, but still. And, and artists always use paint and they use a, a brush and they have a, a canvas. And uh, with all create, creative processes, there is something there already. We need to have tools, we need to have something that already exists. But God did not need anything to create, He didn't need any. Materia, he didn't need tools. He didn't need anything. He just spoke. He creates what theologians like to call ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is a mystery. I don't. I I, I read a little bit on this um, from R.C. sprawl and he said this when when there was the question: How does God create out of nothing? How can we understand this and his simple answer was i don't have a clue i don't have a clue how god creates out of nothing because it's not revealed to us but god has that ability that is within his power to do to create out of nothing he's alone in doing so we don't create out of nothing god creates out of nothing He just speaks. He comes into being. That is his creative works. And his redemptive works, well, God shows greater power in his redemptive works than in his creative works. Think about that. When God created the world, there was no one or nothing to resist him. There was no devil, there was no unbeliever to resist him. He just created. It was a straightforward process. But in his redemptive works, and uh, I, I read this in Thomas Watson's book of, uh, what's it called, of Divinity. I just lost the name of his book. But anyway, his systematic theology, his, he goes through the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism. And he wrote this on the God's omnipotence, When God made the world, he met with no opposition, as he had nothing to help him, so he had nothing to hinder him. But when he converts a sinner, he meets with opposition. Satan opposes him. The heart opposes him. A sinner is angry with converting grace. There is much opposition when God redeems, when he saves. This is a greater work. This is a display of God's ultimate power. Jesus on the cross is God's ultimate power. Romans 1 says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It is the power of God. God's power does not only include creating this and that and forming circumstances, this and so forth. God's power and its ultimate power is displayed in the gospel in saving people in the cross of Christ. The world is at war with God. They fight God. They hate God. They resist Him to death. But still God saves all those He has intended to save. All those He elected before there was anything, before He established the heavens and the earth. He elected some unto salvation and he fulfills that plan today, tomorrow, all the way until Jesus returns. Nothing will stop that plan, nothing will hinder his redemptive works because God is all powerful. God has power power to create and power. Redeem. What's, when we think about power, we think about armies and kings and rulers and those in authority. Back in the last century, the 20th century, we had uh, communism on the rise. still have some kind of that. But we had a, 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 an Eastern Bloc. There was a, an iron wall in Europe. And behind that wall in the Eastern Bloc, in Soviet Union and in all its uh, all these the states that was under the control and influence of the Soviet Union, that it was, you were forbidden to own a Bible. You were forbidden to go to church. There was no freedom of religion because communism is, of course, an overthrow of God. It's an overthrow of, of the, the biblical God. So you were not allowed. There were, There was armies fighting against it. They had Soldiers coming after you, if you were a preacher and you went to the Soviet Union, you were living under a constant death threat. Because at any time, at any moment, a soldier, a Russian soldier, whatever, could come and take you away and you would never be seen again. Now that is, of course, something we fear because it is real power, but still God's redemptive power was even greater. To think that there was no salvation in the Soviet Union or Romania or... Ukraine or Poland or all the other countries that were under the Soviet Union's influence is to be very, very wrong. There was revival. There was Bible being smuggled into the Eastern Bloc. There were many people who put their lives on the line just so to give Bibles, just so to spread the news, the gospel. To those living under constant oppression. No army, no border, no wall could stop God's redemptive power. And it's the same thing today. There is Christians in North Korea, there is Christians in all the oppressive countries of the world. Nothing stops the redemptive power of God. It goes through any wall. It goes through any army. God saves, no matter what. And before we leave, I have one text I want to go to still, but I want us to understand that the omnipotence of God has real life-changing implications for us. This day, I don't want to just leave this Sunday and be like, that was very interesting to know about the omnipotence of God. Now I have the arguments for my debate, or now I can... Rest assured that I know that God is omnipotent. But no, it has real life-changing implications to know that God is omnipotent. Let's go to the book of Judges. This most neglected book seems to be one of those books that people never turn to because it's so full of depressive elements. They're full of unbelief, full of people turning away from God. Judgment, judgment, judgment. It's never found in any devotional don't want to go to the book of Judges for devotional. It's just depressing, depressing, depressing. But there is some spots of lights here and there and everywhere. Of course, as it always is. And uh, this is one of those texts that I want to to turn to in chapter 6. Actually, chapter 7, but look at chapter 6 as well. Israel is here being oppressed by the Midianites, They were given into the hands of the Midianites for seven years because they had forsaken their God. The Midianites came and they destroyed their crops, their sheep, their ox, their donkeys. They devastated the land of Israel. And now the Israelites, when they came under this judgment, when the Midianites came in and and oppressed them, they started to do what? They cried out to God. God deliver us. God send us a deliverer. Someone who can save us from the Midianites. And that is what God did. He sent them a a deliverer. Gideon. Gideon from verse 14 and forward. I'm not going to read all that because it's a very long chapter. But Gideon was a man of the tribe of Manasseh. And uh, he says that of all the... Families in Manasseh, his family was the least. His family, my family is the least. How shall I deliver? Verse 15: How shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family, father's house. So but the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now he was the small, he was the youngest. Not the oldest, the one who was uh, expected to, to take over after the father, to care for the family after that, who was given a double inheritance. He was the youngest, the last one. He, his family was the least in the tribe of Manasseh. There were other families that probably had greater names to them, greater inheritance. But his family was the least. And Manasseh was not the biggest tribe in, in Israel it was one of the, the smallest one actually. But still God chose from this tribe and from this family Gideon to display his almighty power, to display that he is not dependent on powerful men, he's not dependent on powerful families, powerful tribes, powerful heritage, God. Uses that which is weak and small and frowned upon. And how did God do, how did God deliver the Israelites from the Midianites? Well, the Midianites had gathered a a great army and they had come together with the Amalekites, another people that were constantly in conflict with Israel. And it also says that the sons of the east in the valley of Jezreel. Valley of Jezreel. So they had gathered an army. They were prepared now, finally, once and for all, we will bring down the Israelites. We will crush them. We will annihilate them. We will destroy them. Now, this Valley of Jezreel was a, if you know your, your Bible, it was a valley of so many battles. we had seen in, in Judges 4 and 5, Deborah. There was a battle in Jezreel. Uh, Saul fought in the the valley of Jezreel. Jehu, Josiah fought there. That was a valley that saw many battles. doesn't saw anything else but battles. It was a valley between Samaria and Galilee, separating those two areas. So Gideon, now that he had been given this this, um, task by God, to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. He started sending out messengers into, into Israel to gather an army of his own. And he, he received some men. About 30,000 men showed up to, to fight with Gideon against the Midianites. But this was, of course, a very small army in comparison with what the Midianites had. They were probably numbering the hundreds of thousands. So it did not look very good. Gideon had just 30,000 men. Now, what happens next? Let's read in chapter 7 from verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom, uh, he of whom I say to you, this, is, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue As a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man Each man to his home. Let's stop there. Remarkably, we can see here that God decreases and decreases the number of the army of Gideon. They start with 30,000, about 30,000. And at the end, there's just 300 people left. 300. Have Have you seen the movie 300? Yes. Yes, you have. If you haven't, you should. It's a good movie. It's an amazing movie. I really like it. It's a, it's a story of, of King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans who, who fought against uh, an invading Persian army of about 300,000 men, seemingly. We don't, of course, can't verify that in any way. But so the story tells us. 300,000 Persians came up to, to uh, uh, fight and invade Greek Greece. Sorry, and Leonidas and his 300 men stood against them. Now... It's a good movie. I really like it. I really enjoy it. But if any movie that is called 300 should be made, it should be on this story. These 300 men. Not King Leonidas. He was killed, by the way. So he didn't really succeed. But this story. These Gideon and his 300 men. This is the movie they should make called 300. Of course, it's not Gideon and the 300, which is important. It is God. It's God working here. God displays his power to destroy the Midianites' army by reducing Gideon's army down to just 300 men. And then how does he do it? Verse 16 through 18 says this. He divided the 300 men, that is Gideon, he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, look at me and do likewise and behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you shall also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon, that's it. That's their battle plan: to blow trumpets, to shout. That seems laughable in many people's eyes. What? What's that going to accomplish? Just blowing the trumpets, just shouting? Are there, uh, Is the the Gideonite, no, Midianite army? Are they just going to run away? Are you just going to give up, or roll over? Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. That's pretty much what happened. Verse 21 and 22 says this. Each stood in his place. This is talking about the Midianite army. When they were blowing their trumpets, when they were shouting. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Befshidah towards Sererah, as far as the edge of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. God defeated the army by a simple shout and a simple Blowing of trumpets. This is how God gave victory. This is how he displayed his power over everyone. Over any army. A mighty army had gathered together. But still they could do nothing against God. They knew that God was fighting on Gideon's side. It doesn't matter if Gideon would have had 50,000 or 100,000 or just 300 men. God was fighting with Gideon and his small group. And the Midianites fled in terror. They were scared to death. They knew that this will not be a battle we can win. We're fighting against the God of Israel. We're fighting against the God who has created everything. The God who has all power they fled. They started killing each other. They were so panicked, so frightened, so fearful that they killed each other. The army was destroyed by the omnipotent power of God. Gideon's job was to trust God, to shout, to blow a trumpet. That was his job. That was what he was supposed to do. And God did the rest. The youngest man in his family, the smallest, the, the, the least family in Manasseh, crushed a mighty army of Midianites and Amalekites. Through this small, non intimidating, weak, tiny, laughable force, God did great things. And he does that through those who trust in him, in what he says, in what he says he will do. This reminds me again of Mary, the Queen of Scots, and what she said about John Knox. She said this, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. John Knox going up to his prayer closet, praying to God was fearful to Mary Queen of Scots. She had an army, she had power. John Knox was just a Protestant preacher. But when he went up to God, when he prayed to God, there was real power. Mary understood this. She was not a believer, she was a Roman Catholic. She tried to make Scotland Roman Catholic and and John Knox would have none of it. But when John Knox prayed, She trembled because she knew that John Knox knew the real powerful God. So there is power in prayer, beloveds. There is power in a single man or single woman coming to God. One man or one woman with God is in the majority, is always in the majority. We stand with whom? With Athanasius. Athanasius against the whole world. Because Athanasius stood with whom? With God. With God. There was nothing the whole world could do against him. Because there was nothing they could do against God. God has this power. God is so almighty. He can deliver Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. He could Take them out of Egypt. He could give them the promised land. Surely you must realize that this is the same God that we worship today that did this in the past. Surely you must realize that this is the same God who hears prayers, that heard John Knox's prayer, John Knox, who eventually outlived Mary, Queen of Scots, and who accomplished his reformation in the Scottish Church. This is the same God who raised up David, who raised up Solomon, who raised up Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar. It is the same God who has power over all these mighty rulers and kings that is still here to, with us to this day. Now how can you not trust this God? Has he ever failed a single one of his tasks? Has he ever failed his purposes? Has he ever fail to answer a single prayer. William Carey once said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. So should you. The works of God to this day does not depend on men and women being strong and having lots of power, but on God accomplishing his works. What he has set out to do. So turn this day to God. Pray to him. Seek him. Ask of him. Doesn't matter how much you ask of him. There is nothing that is too great for him to do. The greatest thing you can think of in your head is not too hard for him. An unbeliever, I know you hear this as well and you have heard it. God is almighty and you have laughed in your head. God is almighty. Why is there sin? There is sin because you should know that there is a God who has created you. Who is angry with your sin. Who will judge you. Who has the power to judge you. As much as he has the power to save the greatest of sinners. He has the power to send you to hell. So do you want grace? Do you want God to overlook your sins? To not be angry with you? To not send you to eternal judgment? Then turn to Christ. Turn to him who reconciled an all-powerful God with us, with sinners. Throw yourselves at the cross. Cry out to him, O Lord, please save me. You who are powerful enough to save me. Who can take my hard heart and make it into heart of flesh. Please, Lord, save me. Save me through your cross. The power of God unto salvation. Do this this very day. And he will save you. Amen. Let's end there. Our Heavenly Father. We come before you this Sunday knowing that you are truly almighty. You have all power. You are the omnipotent God. You can create whatever you want. You can save whoever you want. There is nothing stopping you or your purposes. Lord, help us remember that. Help us live like that. Help us be more like those who live for your glory, completely trusting you. We saw Gideon trusting you with only 300 men. We saw John Knox trust you before the whole Scottish army. Oh Lord, you can do the impossible. You are almighty. You can turn this nation around if you like. You can make it into a Nation of Christians. If you so desire. Lord we know that. Now please Lord we ask. For our brothers and sisters. Who do not know you. That you would save them. We know you can. We know you want to. Please Lord. Save sinners. Those who heard the word. But have not repented. Lord work on their hearts. Penetrate hard heart. Put fear in their In their mind. And turn them to Jesus. The only one who can save them. Lord we ask these things. That your name would be glorified. In Jesus name. Amen.